Romans chapter 10. With today's lesson, we'll be right in the middle of this section of 9 through 11, which um, there's a lot of uh, different uh, ideas on what it's about. One of them, of course, the real popular is is uh, talking about Israel, past, present, and future. And that is true. But the overall writing theme is still the gospel. And we'll see that really clearly today. And actually, my overall, my favorite passage in Scripture, Romans 10, 9 through 17. And uh, we'll be able to uh, see that today and, and uh, see what God has for us, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you give us to gather in fellowship. We thank you, Father, for uh, the opportunities you give us to so freely uh, preach and hear and teach the Word of God and how uh, important that is in our life and especially should be so as we consider others that don't have that same freedom. We pray for Israel today and uh, the attacks that were made on it. And we know, Lord, they're still your people, your chosen people, and that, uh, Father, you will bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. And we want to be in the first group and bless Israel. And we pray for Jerusalem Assembly as a, a Christian church, a local call-out assembly like us in the midst of Jerusalem. And, uh, Father, uh, which uh, they can be under persecution, not only from the enemies of Israel, but also from Israel herself. So we pray for Israel, that they would come to know you as Savior, they would identify you as their Messiah. And we know sooner or later that will happen. We just pray that it will happen sooner for many of those people. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start today, uh, we're going to be dealing with the exercise of human responsibility now, last week in chapter 9, we uh, had what many would consider a really tough subject, and that is the doctrine of election and uh, how God elects. And if you recall in, in chapter 9 and verse 6, Paul starts out bef- before he really hits the uh, issue of election. He, first of all, gives credit to Israel in verses 4 and 5, and uh, how they've been blessed by God, and how they've been made a special people. And then he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. The word of God has not failed. Uh, It has not failed Israel, as uh, we saw at the end of that chapter, as he talks about a remnant of Israel that is saved. And it has not failed us, because uh, as Gentiles we are included But he says in verse 11, the last part of verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not start, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And then he goes through to use examples in the Old Testament of how God worked in that fashion. He worked in that fashion with Abraham, with Isaac, with with, uh, Jacob. And uh, he even worked, he goes back to Moses and uh, Pharaoh. And the fact that God chooses 
which is a real hard thing for us to uh, get our minds around, isn't it? But today we're going to see man's responsibility. Now, the way I've always envisioned this is, and there's all kinds of examples of train tracks and how they run parallel to each other, and then different things will be labeled there. That's how I see the issue of God's sovereign election and of man's responsibility. One, one track is, is God's sovereign election, the other one is man's responsibility. And in that, uh, we see that if you stand, and, and I remember the first time I heard something along this line many years ago, and uh, we are near train tracks, and I'd walk those tracks, and you'd stand there and you look down the track as far as you can see, and what does it look like as you look down the train tracks? Yes, he just said it uh, just, just perfect there, John did. It, it comes together, and it almost comes together if you look far enough down, if you can see that far, where it becomes one. And you see it meshed together as one, and yet you know there's two separate tracks still there. And if you walk down, you'll find out that they're still the same two tracks, they're still the same distance apart. And that's how I see the issue of God's sovereign election and man's free will. Biblically, we know that they are, uh, I believe, we should all know, they are two doctrines in the Word of God. The problem we have with our uh, mental states, our intellectual states, which, uh, you know, some are really bright and some are more like me, they're a little bit on the dull side, but the reality is we all have an intellect and we like to fix things. Now, that's, that's my personality. I've always told people, I've always told young people, whatever your strength is, is your weakness in the, same, in the right situation. Well, that's when you try to fix things, and you try to fix that, which I can remember trying to do in my mind, come up with something that would explain those two doctrines, and that somehow they come together uh, into one understanding, and I, and I never could do it. And I still can't, but I quit trying because it's an exercise of faith. And we believe God, we believe his word, we accept it for what it is with an understanding that he has the complete picture. We have the narrow picture of whatever that day is in our life and we're looking at it. I believe it was Spurgeon, and I could not find it, but I believe it was Spurgeon that one time was asked by somebody about the conflict. How do you deal with the conflict of God's sovereign election and man's free will and responsibility. How do you deal with that conflict? And his answer was, I don't, because there's never a real conflict between real good friends. That was his answer. And he viewed those two doctrines as friends. They were friends with each other, so there was no conflict. Now. We know that we can have tensions. There are things in the Bible, pastors mention this as he preaches, areas in the Bible that might be a little bit harder to understand, and there's a tension that can be there. And the tension means a state of being stretched, like if you took a band and you stretch it, I got some of those stretch bands to exercise my thoracic area, and you pull those bands, and if you pull them as taut as possible, you're shaking like this because you can't hardly hold them, but they're stretched. They're brought, they're brought taut. And in our mental and emotional state, we have a strain or a, a stretch, a tension sometimes with things in Scripture. That's not a bad thing. 
but we, we, can't, we can't eliminate one or override one because it fits our comfort zone. That's the process, I believe, of maturity amongst Christians is to come to realize there may be tensions sometimes. It doesn't change the fact of God's sovereign doctrine. God is in charge, and that's how I see here. So it's, it's uh, you know, we've all heard of uh, uh, the Heaven's Gate one, where you're walking up to the gate of heaven, and above the gate you see a message. What is it? Whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. And you walk through the gate of heaven, and you look back at that beautiful gate, and what does it say? Ephesians 1.4, elect from the foundation of the world. That's where we are. If you're saved today, we're part of the whosoever will may come. And that's the way we need to live our lives out as we talk to other people. But reality is, when you get, we walk through the gate of heaven, look back, it's going to say Ephesians 1.4, elect from the foundation of the world. And that's God's place. And that's what we're dealing with here. So I wanted to throw that out there. And uh, as we go into these ne this next portion, I started at, at uh, Romans 9, verse 30. I, for me, at least from, for reading and studying, it fits better to have that with chapter 10 than in chapter 9. And he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who... Who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed. Or, I think better spoken there, a law of righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. And then it goes on, a very familiar uh, verse, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. And where did that come from? Isaiah. We're going to see a lot of Isaiah's scripture today that Paul incorporates in chapter 10. And a rock of offense, and whoever, there's the word that we want to pay attention to as we go through chapter 10. It's whoever or whosoever or everyone, they're all the same word, it just uh, depends on what uh, Bible you have, believes in him will not be put to shame. So what are we looking at here? In John 1.11 is one of the, uh, probably one of the saddest verses in scripture when Jesus said, uh, or John said about Jesus, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Then he goes on to say, but whosoever received, and believed in his name. They were counted as, as uh, children of God. So uh, that verse there talks about Israel. They, he came to his own, but they didn't receive him. They rejected him. And that's why I think we see a major break, break here in John's uh, discussion concerning um, election and the free will of man. Israel had a freedom. They were elected as a nation. We know that he says at the end of chapter 9 there, there's a, there's a remnant that will be saved out of Israel. That was true in the Old Testament. That's going to be true in the New Testament. It's ultimately going to be true 
in uh, the tribulation and entering the kingdom. But there's two words here that we're going to see that dominate our, our study today, and that is faith and righteousness. And uh, we already saw verse uh, chapter 9, 30 and 31, is a righteousness of faith and a righteousness by the law. In chapter 10, 3, it's God's righteousness versus their own righteousness. In uh, verses 5 and 6, again, it'll be righteousness by faith and a righteousness by law. So Paul is making this constant comparison, and what, what is the true righteousness is where he's ultimately going to go. So we see here with Israel and the Gentiles, the composition of God's people. Verses 30 to 33, we see the Gentiles had not pursued their own righteousness. The end of chapter 9 now. They had not pursued their own righteousness. Uh, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5 told us that they are ignorant of God's promises. They are excluded from the covenants that were given to Israel. And yet, when God offered, uh, through Paul here, but through the apostles, and even in the Old Testament, we know there was a, there was a remnant of Gentiles, but when God openly offered the gospel to uh, the Gentile people, what did they do? They responded. They responded. The Gentiles, you know, in the New Testament era, the Gentile people were a real wicked bunch. They were totally idolatrous. They, uh, they were uh, obscene. They were immoral. Uh, that's, you know, when you go back and read First uh, and Second Corinthians and what Paul deals with there in the church, in the church at Corinth, it was a real mess when you started dealing with the Gentile people and who they were. And yet, when the gospel was brought to them, and the primary one was Paul, he was the missionary, he was called to the Gentiles, as Peter was called to the Israelites. And when Paul went to the Gentiles, they responded. Now, can you imagine what that did to the Jewish people? Remember in Galatians, all the trouble that Paul was having up in the area of Galatians with, uh, I think, five churches there? And the Jewish people were coming from Jerusalem. There was leaders who were going up there and saying, well, okay, uh, you, can, you can accept Jesus, but, but you have to add what? The law and the practices of the Jews, which now we're, we're talking 400 years since God had any communication with the Jewish people, the intertestamental period. And if you read Malachi, you'll see why. They just, they just had rebelled against God, so he left them to their own ways. And for 400 years, now they've developed what they deem as their process of worship and their idea of what the law said. And now Jesus comes on the scene, and it didn't mesh, and they rejected Jesus. So now he's went to the Gentiles. Now, on the other hand, Israel, he lists Israel as a, as a whole here, but we understand that whenever there's Israel listed as a whole, we always have to keep in mind there's always a remnant. But they pursued righteousness through the law. They did not seek it by faith. Isaiah 8, 14, and that's what we read there with, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone or a stumbling block, and some might say, and a rock of offense. But here, the law, and whenever, whenever just about always, uh, when Paul talks about the law, he's talking about the law of Moses. But the law of Moses, when properly interpreted, calls for faith. So Paul's point here is they pursued righteousness, but they missed it by elevating the law by works. They did not pursue it by faith. And he goes on, and we get to chapter 10 in the first four verses, and he talks about Israel's zeal. 
Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for, is, for God for them is that they may be saved. Now, here we have the staircase, and Paul uses this a lot. So you see the next three verses start with four, the word four. That's because verse two explains verse one, verse three explains verse, verse two, and verse four explains verse three. I, I suppose if you follow that to a logical conclusion, you could say now verse four just kind of stands out there and hangs on its own. But that's how Paul writes here. So he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, when you think of a zeal for God, can you think of any place in the New Testament where a zeal for God was, was a good thing? When Jesus cleansed the temple, he had a zeal for God, and he exercised it. And he chased the money changers out of the temple. So it's not that zeal for God is a bad thing. Hopefully we have a zeal for God. Hopefully we have a real zeal for God that's based on faith and a salvation that we've obtained. But a zeal for God in Acts 22 was Paul as he went and, and uh, tried to destroy Christendom and either killed these Christians or brought them and put them in prison. He had a zeal for God. But it was wrong. It was the same zeal that, the, that the, the, the predominance of the Jewish people had. It was a zeal that was based on his understanding of the law and how it should be carried out and exercised, especially as a Pharisee. And Paul's pointing out here that that, that, that's, that doesn't work here. And he goes to verse 3, he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Big word, submit. We don't like that word, do we? <laughs> Heard some sound here from the front row. Yeah. We don't like that word of, to submit. We like to be our own men, our own women. We don't like to submit. We don't like to submit to leadership. We don't like to submit really to anything in our life. Why? Because it goes against our nature. I believe that's one of Satan's greatest tools that he uses in the unsaved, but also in the saved lives, to prevent them from doing everything they could in the exercise of their faith. They don't want to submit. We don't want to submit. But he goes on and said, Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the culmination of the law. He was the Messiah. And that was the culmination of the law. So we go on here, and we get to the next part, verses 5 through 13, and now he's going to lay out this whole thing of salvation to us uh, very clearly. What the Jews didn't understand is that God was offering them a relationship through Christ, the Messiah, by faith. And they were fulfilling all of salvation history by doing that, but they refused. They refused that. Christ was the culmination of salvation history. He was the final. You know, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 26, Paul uses the case of a runner. You remember that in the race in life? Well, here's the same thing. We have a race. It started in the Garden of Eden, and it's heading towards a goal, an ultimate goal that God set in salific history, history of salvation. And it's a goal that's set there. And he's saying it, the Jewish people were the ones who were chosen. I mean, you know, after God dealt with people at Babel 
and dispersed them because they were raising a, a idol uh, for themselves to the heavens. And then he dealt with them at Noah, at the time of Noah, and, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, so he didn't destroy all of mankind. And all these different things, and he finally said, okay, I'm going to work through a nation. And he chose Abraham. And he established a nation. And he worked through them to bring around the, what we'd call the salific uh, history, the ultimate goal in salific history. Well, what was that goal? It was the Messiah. The Jews knew this. They'd been taught this their whole life, the Messiah. And yet they missed it here. They missed the culmination, the goal that was established for them. We're in uh, chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. And they missed that whole goal. So the exercise of their human will and responsibility was what? That's what we're talking about in this chapter. Man's will and their responsibility. To submit to God. To submit to God. They refused to submit. Now I got turned down. Is that still okay with you back there? Can you still hear me? Abe, can you still hear me? Okay. Um, so that was their issue here. So we go on to chapter, or, uh, verses 5 through 13, and now he's going to talk, and he's going to start with, he's going to use a lot of Old Testament scripture here. He's proving to the Jews that they missed it, but he's also inviting the Gentiles, as we'll see, to join in. And he comes into uh, chapter 10 here in verses 5 through 13. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven and who will descend uh, into the, to, to the abyss or the deep, or some use uh, sea and uh, abyss get to be used uh, as the same word there. But Moses is talking here. What was impossible in the law, Galatians uh, 3.24, was the law was what? Remember that? We went through that when I taught Galatians and made a big point of it. What? Schoolmaster or a tutor. It was a, it was a, there was a purpose in the law that was good and pure. God's law is good and pure. And it's good for us. We can say, well, that's in the Old Testament. It doesn't make any difference. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All of it. And the law was a schoolmaster that the Jews should have recognized as the children of God and, and walking under Moses' leadership and then others in the, in the promised land. And they, they missed that because it was a schoolmaster. And it has been accomplished by our sovereign God. His incarnation and resurrection, which I think is what he's referencing in 6 and 7, um, it's based on faith. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend in the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. That was God who did that. God provided them with all the signals that they needed in the, in the matter of incarnation, which they knew about from the Old Testament, and the matter of uh, his uh, resurrection, which they knew about from the Old Testament and from the teaching of Moses. So we have that in front of us today. The law has come near God's people in a way that never before was done. Look at here. In Deuteronomy, Moses said, verse 8, but what does it say? What does it say? The law of Moses, the word is 
near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. And then there's a little parenthetical. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. It is near you. Way back in Deuteronomy, as Moses is writing, he writes about that fact. And the responsibility here is they had all these writings available to them. They should have recognized these things, like Paul is recognizing now, these statements that came out of the New Old Testament. In some cases, those Old Testament statements uh, belong to uh, an eschatological uh, sense. We'll see that in a little bit. But Paul is applying them here. So, and Pastor said this many times, there's a dual purpose in many of these statements. So Paul is using them here. We can't say, well, Paul, you're wrong. That was, that was just for Israel. No. He's using them here in the New Testament. The word of God is near, and he's going to go on and explain that now in verses uh, 9 and 10. So we had, we had Deuteronomy. Now we see that God is, uh, has raised Jesus. Uh, the reference here in verses 6 and 7, he, he, ra- he, he, he incarnated Jesus, brought him to earth as man. Then he raised Jesus from the grave. And what was the purpose? Here we have it. Two of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. But if you confess to your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now that's the King James, so if you have a different version. And I got the ESV up here. And he goes on, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto what? Salvation. Salvation. Heart justification, mouth salvation. What's he getting at? Now he reversed those for a purpose. And we're going to see even more of a purpose when we get down a few verses here of how the gospel is to be presented. There's a responsibility we have to do this in the way that he's laying out here. But he's saying here, in those two verses, here's how you get saved. That's a question for each one of us to always ask. I'm not saying to doubt, but to always ask. If you believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead and you confess with your mouth, that he is Lord. What does confession mean? What does the word confession mean? We got all this brain power in here. What does confession mean? To confess something. Okay, admit wrongdoing. Anything else? That is part of it. Yeah. Okay, with my Lord. Anything else? Yeah, here. He's master. Okay, and if you look at a, a definition of confession, it's to agree with somebody and say the same thing. So when it says here that we're to confess, who are we agreeing with? Who are we agreeing with? We're agreeing with, pardon? We're agreeing with God. Verses 6, 7, and 8. God sent Jesus as incarnate. God raised Jesus from the dead. God was the one that put the words in Moses' mouth. In uh, verse 8 where it says, but the word is here, near you and in your mouth and in your heart. And when you confess that Jesus is Lord... 
all that is encompassed in the fact that you agree with God. Do you agree with God? Have you agreed with God? Have we said the same thing? Do we say the same thing as what God has, has said here and lay it out for, for others to also see? So heart belief leads to justification and confession leads to salvation. That's what verse 10 is telling us. Now we know from earlier scripture, back in chapter 8, remember we got into the whole thing of the predicated statements of foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and um, glorification. And we saw those, those stepping stones. Well, it's the same kind of thing here. If a person really believes in their heart, they're going to speak it. And it's a shame when they don't. They're going to speak it. That's something to remember. As Christians, we all have different gifts. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. I understand that. But we all should have the capacity to proclaim Jesus Christ. Dead, crucified, resurrected, and living today. And confess that he is our, our Savior. If we're really saved, that should not be a problem. Now, I fail on that a lot of times. I don't know how many times I've left a conversation, I'm walking away and thinking, why didn't you give a word of witness? So I am not... I am not the master in that area, not, not any extent with the, of the uh, imagination am I. But we should do that. Now, verse 11 comes from Isaiah again. And in verse 11, he says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And uh, there again, how are we put to shame if we believe in him? It's when we don't confess him to people. That's to our shame. That's why I can walk away from a opportunity, and think, oh, why didn't I say something? Why didn't I give a tract to do something? It's a shame. That's a shame. And we will not, now the ultimate shame, of course, is to be condemned to hell. And that's from Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 28. Who, everyone who believes in her, or whosoever, Scripture says, whosoever will believeth in him will not be put to shame. That's the King James Version. So we go on here. For there is no difference. Now, I tell you what. This had to hit the Jews like a bombshell. This hits the Jews like a bombshell. We, we better have smiles on our face at least. There you go. Good job, Cody. I know what a smile is for you now. I'm going to require it. But we should, we should, because this next verse says there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord over all is rich on all who call upon him. And this is right in the middle of chapter 10, which some would say, and rightfully so, it's not wrong, Israel present. Now, we're 2,000 years removed from this, or almost 2,000, removed from this occasion. We are in the times of the Gentiles. That's what we live in. And praise God, he's given us that 2,000 years. It's the times of the Gentiles. And we know that we have the same opportunity as the Jews have to come to Christ by faith and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his completed work and the blood of Christ that washes us. And we have that opportunity. And Paul's laying it out here. 
And I, I got to believe that the Jews that heard this, many of the, the, the uh, regular Jews that heard this, were just steaming because Paul was their champion. Paul was their, he's the one that stood at the feet of Stephen when he was stoned. He's the one that was going into towns and taking Christians and killing them or imprisoning them. He was their champion of the Jewish faith. And now Paul is saying there's no difference. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. And then he goes on, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13. Now verse 13 comes out of Joel. I am personally hoping to uh, teach through Joel someday and, uh, and Malachi. But in Joel, it's an eschatological statement that he is, he is giving for the end times when the Jews will be brought to Christ. But also, as we see here, it's throughout Salific history. The history of salvation all the way from the Garden of Eden till today is wrapped around that statement. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we can thank God for that because we're included in it as, as uh, Gentile people. Let's go on here so we get this wrapped up in chapter 10. But beautiful, beautiful portion of scripture there, verses 9 through 13. And then it says, how then will they call on him? Now remember, I challenge you to go and read this, because just like we saw the, the predicated statements in chapter 8 of foreknowledge and predestination, calling, um, and uh, justification and glorification, now we have the same thing. Now he gives it in a reverse order here. So we're, going to just, we're just going to read through that quickly. How then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how should they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And what's Paul laying out here? He's laying out something for all of us. You can call this a commission, if you will. Not the great commission, it's still a commission for all of us. Because let's look at it in backwards order. They are sent... Messengers are sent to do what? To preach. Messengers are sent. We have a pastor here. He is called here by God. All we did is put our hand of approval on what God had already done. And he was called here by God, but he's called as a messenger. Uh, the word angels, he's not an angel, okay? But the word angels is messenger. They're messengers of God. You and I are messengers of God. So um, he is sent to preach. Why do they preach? We preach because we want people to hear. Now, that's true of uh, Jeremy Fraser when he was here as an evangelist. It's true of our pastor, of our teachers. It's true of missionaries. They're sent to preach. Why? So people can hear. Preach what? The Word of God. And they hear. Why? Because they have to hear to believe. That's the order that's laid out here. I, I, I don't know how we can get around that. A lot of people want to. Oh, they saw nature and they knew there was a God, so that saved them. No. But I do believe this. If they saw nature and said, there's a God, I want to know him, God will send them the messenger so they can hear. So they, when they hear they have to hear to believe, and then what? 
When they believe, it's exercised the call to salvation. When they believe in their heart, thou confess with thy heart the Lord Jesus, if I believe in our heart the Lord Jesus and call on him, uh, I'm messing it up. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto justification, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's how people get saved. That's how I got saved. I remember my aunt and uncle calling up Doug Munkemeyer, who was a assistant pastor of First Baptist and just down from the Mayo Clinic at that time where the Baldwin building is. That's where First Baptist. I was a ring bearer in that church. Does that get me any points? No. But Doug Munkemeyer, and then he also was in charge of uh, Campus Crusade for Christ out at the junior college. He came to their house, and he went through this process. He was, he was sent. He preached the word to me. I heard the word. I believed the word, and I called on Jesus Christ to save me. That's the process. And sometimes I think people have doubt of their salvation because they maybe never went through the process. And we have that available here. So let's finish up. He goes on here. And I want to ask, which is the most important step there? Paul lists those steps. Which one's most important? I heard one. Huh? Okay, confession. Anybody else? Any of our other teachers? <laughs> which is the most important one? They all are. Because they're all predicated. Every one of them, you could, you could answer any one of those and you're right. But they're all predicated on one another. They're all predicated. You can say the scent is the most important one. Well, that's, that's God's job. We send missionaries. We help send missionaries. But that's still God. You know, we talk about faith. We exercise faith. Well, who gave us faith? When we talk about the free will of man, people say, oh, I'm free to exercise my own faith. Well, who gave you the faith? God. <laughs> so it's all predicated on God in the end. And then he goes on here in, in verse 15, he goes back to Isaiah. Pastor's going to preach on this today. And um, in verse 15, he says, how, And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's coming out of Isaiah. And then 16 and 17 comes out of Isaiah 53. Pastor will probably preach on that next week. Not all obeyed. And literally what he's saying there is uh, that few obeyed, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And he's saying that in the essence of very few believed. He did not see, a, he did not see a, a, all of Israel come to their knees in repentance. He didn't see that. He saw very few. And he looks at it and says, of all Israel, there's very few that believe. And that's coming out of Isaiah. So he finishes up here in 18 through 21. Psalm 19.4. What does it say here? But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For David... In Psalm, their voice has gone out to all the earth. I believe that's the inhabited earth of that day. And their words to the ends of the world. It's gone out. Israel has heard. The psalmist is saying, Israel has heard. David understood that. And then he goes on from there. 
Uh, did Israel understand? And it says, by ask. Did Israel understand? Verse 19. Now he's going to go back to Moses in Deuteronomy 32. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Now, this brings us back to the last lesson. Hosea, lo am I, not my people. God said, not my people. And then he says, am I, now they are my people. And that's what's being said here. I'll make them jealous of those who are not a nation, not my people, lo am I. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. And then he turns around, Isaiah says in chapter 65, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Who does the Bible said did not seek God's righteousness in any way? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. This is us. Isaiah is saying, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have, been, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And he's talking there about the Gentile nations. In Hosea, that applied to Israel, lo Ami, and then Ami. Same as lo Ruhema, and then Ruhema, mercy. I will not, I will not uh, give mercy, and then he says, I will be merciful. He says that in Hosea. Here now, Paul is using that here to apply to the Gentile nations, just like he did last week. He used that to, in, in uh, chapter 9 to apply to the Gentile nations. Not my people, but now you are my people. We are included in the covenant, the new covenant. We are included in the new covenant. And he gives that here. And God continues to hold out his hand to Israel. And what do they do? Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He holds his hands to Israel, and what do they do? They rebel. They rebel. Why? Because they are absolutely immersed in their own self-righteousness. Now we say, okay, if that's the case, then why in the world do we support Israel? Because God told us to. Because God told us to. Why do we support God's sovereign election? Because God said it. Why do we also support the free will of people to exercise faith? Because God said it. If I go down the streets of Pine Island and I talk to a dozen people, I don't know who he's got elected. My responsibility is to share the gospel. It's God's responsibility to call somebody to himself, not mine. We just share the word. So if God says it, we need to believe it, because we all raise our... If I asked right now... How many people in here believe that the word of God is absolutely God's word? Everybody raise their hand. But the reality is, do we live it out that way? Do we live it out that way? So here's the two questions for us. One, what have you done with Christ? Okay, let's wrap this up. What have you done with Christ personally? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because if you haven't, you are under God's judgment already. You may say, well, my life's pretty good. Uh, yeah, but God sees the end. We just see, see the day. God sees the end. That doesn't mean that a Christian can't suffer through great bouts of cancer or die of a heart attack. All that's, that's part of life because we're all going to die a physical death unless the rapture comes. But what have you done with Jesus? Have you received Jesus as your personal Savior? 
Are you one of those who are elect? Not because you were a great person, but because God chose you. Well, I'm telling you, if you're here today and you're hearing this message, God has elected you to be here. It's God's sovereign will that brought you in the doors this morning. You might say, well, no, I woke up and decided to go to church. No, you might have. That was your free will exercise, but God brought you here, and he brought you here for a reason. So what have you done with Jesus? Have you received him? The second thing is this. For us who know you're saved, what are you doing for Jesus? <laughs> That's the one that always gets me. What are you doing for Jesus? How are we serving? What's the most important thing in our life? I'll tell you this. I can look back on my life, and it's still uncomfortable, but I can see the things that God took away from me in order to keep me channeled where God wanted me to be. He didn't want me taking care of a big lawn and a bunch of flower beds that I loved and all that. I'm not saying that people have them. That's, that's, that's fine. But God knows me. And God knows if I get wrapped into something, I kind of just go whole hog. So God wants that channeled in the right direction. What about you? What did God, does God have? I'm not the example here. I just use my, my personal situation. I'm not the example of, of servitude. But are we an example of servitude as a whole? Are we exercising the gifts we have? whether it's giving or serving in some ways here, the people in the kitchen this morning, all those people that go through the kitchen, take turns and things like that, they're all acts of servitude. What are we doing for Jesus? What are we doing for him? You know what? There's great hope for Israel. And we will see that next week in chapter 11. And then we're down to the doctrinal part, primary doctrinal part of, uh, of uh, Romans. And we'll get into... I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the, what? Mercies of God, that you give yourself. It's our reasonable service to give ourselves to the Lord in service. Thank you.